The following is a production of Galactic Netcasts. Before there was radio, TV, or podcasts, people gathered together to tell stories. And these stories were meant to entertain or educate. It really drew people in and helped them forget their troubles of the day and experience something they've never imagined before or maybe illustrated something in a way that was more easily to mentally digest. This tradition has been reborn in the forms of not only RPGs and LARPs, but in console, card, and board games as ways to tell a story and bring you into the tale. We're going to be talking about news, kickstarters of games you should be aware of, and interview a guest about a topic that involves some aspect of storytelling. We welcome you to the Adventure Party. Hello, and welcome to the 38th Gathering of the Adventure Party on this, the 24th of January. I'm your party leader, Brad Ludwig. We ask that you peace tie your swords, holster your blasters, and make sure you have your eyes closed and are prepared for wonder while you are gathered at the meeting table. I actually didn't stumble over an intro and give it a little bit of a mood going on there. Did nothing for you. Nothing. Not feeling it, Glenn? I'm just I'm trying to hold it in so I don't explode. <laughs> all over my camera. Oh, you're you're too good to me, Glenn. You're too good. <laughs> I was actually trying to think of the proper Barry White song to sing, but I just, I just couldn't get there. I think "Let's Get It On" is the correct yeah. answer. Ah, <laughs> uh, so uh, and we want to thank our, our listener Scott Schwartz for for the topic, and and the topic uh, this evening is going to be minis or no minis. Uh, is the theater of the mind dead, or are minis essential to gameplay for tabletop RPGs? Is there still room for theater of the mind? Dun, dun, dun. Open your mind. <laughs> Open, Open your mind. mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. Total recall from the from the 80s. Well, no, that was early 90s. Yeah, that was early '90s. Yep. Still, still a good film. Don't care what anybody says, and it's not because of the the three-breasted woman. It's a good film all the way around. Well, for the most part. Say, instead of doing a show about Total Recall, we should probably continue on. Uh, the second in command here is Glenn Bittner, and he is a movie reviewer on his YouTube show called The B Movie Bunker, and is the creator of the RPG Mist Runner. How are you? I'm was doing okay, but found out that they're bringing a mini series of Dread to Netflix. So now I'm uh, pretty damn giddy. Uh, Carl Urban coming back for that, or they just? I think so. (gasps) Not confirmed, but yes, please let it be so. Let it be so. Oh, the Dread movie I thought was awesome. Absolutely. And enough of movie talk. We should probably continue on with our usual antics of our roundtable discussion, your game review that you do, Glenn, a bit of gaming news, and then we just jump right into our topic of the week. But to kick this off, you are going to review something that seems a little meta and kind of funny. So what is this? This is, well... First of all, the game was originally titled Rampage, uh, but for legal reasons, they had to oh. change that to Terror in Meeple City. What it is, is you are all giant monsters destroying a town 
Uh, meeples. Okay, I, I want to pause for a second and ask the question, at what point did somebody think that they could get away with that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, but for those of you who don't know, back in our day, there was an arcade game called Rampage. And I don't remember who owned the rights to that, if that was Midway or Atari. Boy, I think it was Midway. <sighs> Yeah, it was Bally Midway. 1986 was the year. And uh, yeah, you could choose to be one of, uh, I believe, three different monsters. So a wolf, was it an ape, and yep. a lizard? Yep. Anyways, it seems that this uh, this game was probably a little too close to uh, to home there, based on your description. So they had to, uh, they had to change it up. So tell us more. All right. Well, first of all, Dread... Uh, Red. See, I got it on my mind, and, then, <laughs> and it's, it's it's not even a, a done deal. It's like a petition. But, anyways, to the game at hand. Terror in Meeple City is for two to four players. Plays in about forty-five minutes or so, and it's brought to us by uh, Antoine Bauza and Ludovic Malblanc. Antoine Bauza is probably my favorite game designer. He brought us Seven Wonders, and Samurai Spirit, and Takenoko, and Hokkaido, and many games I've talked about before. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Ludovic, or Vich, I'm not, probably Ludovic, I'm, I'm betting, but he brought us uh, Cash and Guns and Mr. Jack and Cyclades. So it's got some good uh, lineage for a game. So, how Terran Maple City works is so you have just arrived in Maple City as a gigantic, famished, scaly skinned monster. Your goal dig your claws and dirty paws into the asphalt, destroy buildings, and devour innocent meeples. In short, sow terror while having fun. Monster who causes the most damage if the carnage ends wins the game. So the board is actually made up of a bunch of different buildings, and the buildings are made up of you have tiles that represent the different floors of the building, and what holds the floors up are meeples. So you use meeples basically as the pillars for, for the floors of these buildings, and you have all these different people in all these different buildings across the city made up into different neighborhoods. Now, your monster is a two piece thing, it's a wooden little monster figure on top of a round wooden base like a disc and on your turn you have a couple different actions you can do you can move and the move you pick up the body of your monster leaving just the disc and you flick the disc on the board trying to move across the board making sure you don't flick yourself off the board because if you do that you lose teeth and teeth determine how many people you can eat each turn oh something else you can do is you can demolish and what that means is that if your paws your little disc is on a sidewalk next to a building, you can pick the monster body up, hold it above the, the building, and drop it onto it, trying to knock over floors and knock people off. You could also possibly toss a vehicle. Uh, there are a couple wooden vehicles in the game, and if you're neighborhood with that, you can pick the vehicle up, place it on top of your body, and then flick the vehicle at a building or another monster. Or you can use your powerful breath weapon, in which case you put your chin on the top of your monster and blow as hard as you can. <laughs> There's a trick, though, is that you don't want to do things too hard. Because, as I said, if, you, if, you're, if your base goes off the board, you lose teeth. Also, if you knock meeples off the board, that means they escape. Oh. And if enough meeples escape, there's different things that can happen. You can possibly lose teeth. Uh, you can The game can actually end, if it, depending on what, what punishment board you're playing on. Um, once you've done your two actions, any meeples that are on the ground in the neighborhood around you 
you can eat uh, as long as you have the teeth to do it. You can basically eat one meeple for every tooth you have. Every monster starts with six. You'll always have at least two. There's two you can't lose, but there's four that you can possibly lose. If you happen to knock another monster off their base, you break one of their teeth off and you get to steal it. Ooh. Um, yes. The meeples themselves come in several different flavors or colors. Journalists are blue. Green is military. Yellow are blondes. Uh, gray are old people. And the red are heroes. And black are businessmen. Uh, you get points for every set of six that you collect in your stomach. And then you also will have special goals. You might get a bonus if you eat the most, say, journalists. Or, you know, if you have the most blondes or whatever. You also have a superpower. Uh, everyone gets their own superpower during the game. And you can have something like a stretchy tongue, meaning you can eat people in other neighborhoods. Oh. Or, you know, basically you just get all these different special powers to basically personalize your character. And then you also have a super secret power, which is a one-shot effect that you can use during the game as well. It's just, it's a lot of fun. I mean, one, yeah, it, it takes me back to the old Rampage video game, uh, which I probably spent the equivalent of... 10 college tuitions on over the course of, <laughs> of like three years. But yeah, it's just, and it's, it's physical dexterity, which a lot of physical dexterity games I'm not really big on just because I'm neither physical nor dexterous, but this one, it's all about making a mess and that I can do. You don't need to be that good to make a mess. And being a man of rather large stature, I have a pretty impressive breath weapon. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. And, and despite looks, it sets up pretty quickly. I mean, under 10 minutes, you got, you got the whole thing set up with all the meeples and the buildings set up. And there is a little tricky thing, too, is that the sidewalks where the, where the buildings fit on the board, they're actually the bottom floor, basically the rubble level, is actually attached to the board, meaning if you flick yourself into it too hard, you'll bounce right off and fly off the board. Oh, okay, sure. So you have to be careful of where you're flicking yourself. And for those of you who are checking out the YouTube version uh, of this particular meeting of the Adventure Party, uh, I've been flipping through individual pictures from BoardGameGeek.com to kind of illustrate the bits that uh, Glenn has been talking about. And we're looking at the board right now with the uh, with the sidewalks and the, the base of the building. And it looks like the blue Rampage monster has uh, flipped over on his side. Fallen down on the stadium. Yes. Now, this looks like a lot of fun, and I'm guessing it's very much a family-friendly type game. What's oh, absolutely. The, absolutely. What's, what's the age range on this particular game? They say six and up. Okay. So, obviously, a, a six-year-old, you might need to get in some help on some of the reading stuff, depending on what their reading level is. Sure. But for their superpowers and whatnot. But, yeah, it's definitely a, a nice family-friendly game. Now, or a, uh, or a oh. beer-friendly game. <laughs> very much so have there been any expansions or is this is uh, it there this? is one expansion which i have not played yet if i remember right it's called um space cowboy the game itself came out just a little over two years ago okay and the little expansion i think it's just a special escape board it's not like a whole expansion the, the skateboard is, is where meeples go if they fall off the board but the skateboard is a special where it only accepts gray meeples. And if you fill it up, you gain an extra su secret superpower card. Hmm. So I guess kind of a play on old people in that movie Space Cowboys with Clint Eastwood and uh, sure. James Garner, I think. <laughs> so, uh, And uh, they have a pretty robust website here, too, for Terror and Meeple City. 
Yes, they do. It's originally from Repos production. Asmodee, I think, is the one who's currently uh, distributing the game, if I remember correctly. Sure. And uh, looking at their website, too, if you're missing any elements in the game or any are damaged, they seem to be pretty easygoing about you emailing them and giving your name, your address, the run number for that particular game that you have, and the parts that you need. That's, yeah. that's, that's really cool. They're, they're a good company to work with as far as getting getting missing pieces. I've had to, we've just had some uh, with our demo and just occasionally you, you know, you get a copy that you sell to someone that's missing something. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of components in there and it's, you know, there's 90 meeples. Yeah. So that's a lot of little wooden guys. Yeah. And if you're missing any, it does change the gameplay because as I said, the people or the meeples are what separate the floors of the buildings. Sure. As it is in real life. People hold up their roof over their head. <laughs> and uh, we were flipping through uh, the pictures for all the meeples that were available in a box, and that was pretty staggering. There's, what, 90 meeples or something like that? 90, yeah. That's that's amazing. And how many people does it uh, support in gameplay? Two to four players. Okay. And what does it approximately retail for? $60. Okay. Which is pretty damn reasonable based on the amount of stuff that you get in that box. That's that's ridiculous. And it looks like average playing time is about 45 minutes. Yep. Yeah, so, it, it plays pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So again, uh, Glenn's game that he reviewed is Terror in Meeple City. Uh, the publisher is Repost Production. Yep. And it is being distributed by. I it it might be through Asmodee, but I'm not positive. Okay. 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 Yeah, I looking at this. I I really kind of want this for my game library now. So uh, no, thank you for sharing that, Glenn. That's really awesome. You bet. All right. I want to talk to you briefly about Galactic Netcasts and uh, a request for help from you, the listener. Uh, if you enjoy what you hear, you know, if you consider giving us a, a monthly bit of support uh, to help pay for our web and audio hosting, that would be great. Uh, your support for as little as a dollar uh, a month can help us uh, grow the network and uh, keep things running. If you decide to do three dollars uh, of support a month. Uh, you can get a monthly newsletter with extra stories related to all of our podcasts. And we have a number of them. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about some of the different shows that the Galactic Netcast Network has available. And if you go all the way up to $5 a month in support, you get an extra episode of each of our podcasts. And that's available only exclusively to our patrons. So please go to patreon.com slash Galactic Netcasts and uh, get, show us some uh, some support if you feel you'd like to do that. We would appreciate that. All right, on to the news. And I was tickled absolutely pink when I saw this. Return to Ravenloft. Yeah. <laughs> for, uh, for older school gamers like Glenn and I, there was a point in time where uh, there were wonderful settings available for D&D. You had the classic Greyhawk, 
which I mean, if you talk to old school gamers, they'll swear up and down that that's one of the best settings that they've ever had for second edition. That was second edition. Yeah, that was second edition D and D. And the one that I really truly enjoyed was the setting called Ravenloft. And in fact, they put out books based on the Ravenloft world. I believe I have an autographed copy from Gen Con of I Strahd. (laughs) Autographed by the author in hardcover. Ravenloft was, was basically a damned land that ended up kind of being spun off. It was so evil, or there was so much evil in it that it kind of spun off into its own realm. And it introduced gothic horror at a level that was truly staggering. And I know, I I think I have four or five of the books from this series, like uh, Carnival of the Dead, Night of the Black Rose. Uh, boy, I'd have to run into my bedroom and uh, look at my uh, bookcase and, and try to remember, uh, get all the titles that I have. But it was a, a truly amazing, well-thought-out, horror-based setting. And it's really exciting. And we had talked about this earlier that uh, with 5th edition, they were going to start dipping into the well of of the history of the game. Everything that was well-received in previous editions and bring it back and update it. And by God, if they didn't go to Ravenloft, and oh, I'm, I'm so, so pumped for that. Uh, this article comes to us from uh, Wizards of the Coast's website. A, uh, here we go. A classic Dungeons & Dragons villain rises from the grave in a new storyline, Curse of Strahd. Today, Wizards of the Coast announced Curse of Strahd, a new Dungeons & Dragons adventure set in Castle Ravenloft and the surrounding land of Barovia. Written in collaboration with Tracy and Laura Hickman, which... Those are two names <laughs> who are absolutely legendary. And when I hear those names, I immediately think of Dungeons and Dragons. I, they were, oh God, I, I, I need to keep going. Uh, the authors of the original Ravenloft Adventure published in 1983. Curse of Strahd pits players against the vampire Strahd von Zarkovich. Curse of Strahd will be available to everyone on March 15th of 2016. So about a month and a half from now. Revisiting the land of Barovia with the creators of the original Ravenloft adventure has been a highlight of my professional career, said Chris Perkins, principal story designer at Wizards of the Coast. Tracy and Laura Hickman created a timeless villain whose faults reflect the darkest traits of humanity. I can't begin to describe what it's like to walk through the halls of Castle Ravenloft with its creators as your guide. That's an absolute coup that they got them to come back and, and, and oh God. Heroes from the Forgotten Realms and other D&D worlds can easily be drawn into Strahd's cursed land. Once there, they must contend with the horrors of Barovia. Its people are melancholy, misshapen, and grotesque, living in fear of wolves and other creatures that serve Strahd's evil will. The only hope for the trapped adventurers is to heed the warnings of a mysterious fortune teller named Madame Eva. Drawing random cards from her <laughs> from her Taroka deck, 
she directs adventurers to search Strahd's domain for artifacts and allies to help the master of Castle Ravenloft. That is, before he orchestrates your demise from, for his amusement and feasts on your terror. While waiting for the adventure, experience the power of Madame Eva for yourself. D&D fans can have their own distinct fortunes read each day by retweeting the official at uh, wizards underscore D&D uh, Twitter account using the hashtag D&D fortune. Madam Eva's fortunes are based on which random card she draws from her Taroka deck and displays for each reading. Check back each day with Madam Eva to see what your hashtag D&D fortune will foretell. Players will also love to get their hands on a physical Taroka deck of cards produced by Gale Force 9, who we've spoken of before, who make high-quality games and uh, other things, and uh, will be available with the release of the adventure. The Taroka deck is a powerful tool for both Madam Eva and for Dungeon Master's running Curse of Strahd. By using the Taroka deck to randomize locations within the adventure, Dungeon Masters can customize each party's exploration of Barovia, allowing Curse of Strahd to be replayed for years to come. OMG. <laughs> that is... Uh... See, now, now I really want to get into D&D 5th edition starting in March. I, I, as much as we've talked about in the past of how they've done some amazing things with 5th edition, I haven't been overly, overly interested in, in purchasing more books because that gets expensive, as you well know. But this might actually sway me to, to get on board. What do you think? Well... I'm already on board. <laughs> if I wasn't, yeah, this definitely would, would, would go a long way. I loved Ravenloft, and I hated Ravenloft because I think it took a specific type of DM to run Ravenloft properly. Okay. There, over, over the years of my youth, um, I had some very good uh, Ravenloft Dungeon Masters. Like our mutual friend Jeff Walters ran Ravenloft very well. I had the unfortunate experience of some people in college who did not run it well. They ran it just like you would run any other D&D campaign. But there needs to be that, that sense of kind of a bit of hopelessness. And, yeah. And, and that definitely, like, you know, overwhelming, you know, foreboding, that sense of terror that is hard for some people to really get across. Don't just, don't just tell me, you know, it's, you know that yeah. I'm fighting a werewolf. You have to give me more than just that. I would I would say to be done right, it has to be mood and narrative driven. Yes. Um, I can think uh, you know Todd Roll could do it. I haven't said his name in a while, uh, but no, I quite honestly, in in thinking of our mutual friend Jeff, he's a Cthulhu fan, and he has read a lot of weird fiction, horror, and things like that. And I think if you have immersed yourself into it enough and know the importance of the narrative and building up the suspense and not, Oh, you run into a werewolf. <laughs> if you can't do that, if you can't build up that mood, that suspense, that whole air of horror, it falls flat. Absolutely. When I played, we had somebody, I played with a group back in the early nineties that was pretty hack and slash. But the GM was a person who could 
bounce between hack and slash and narrative driven. But it was interesting to play with hack and slashers with a GM who was trying to do narrative driven and it got weird in places <laughs> as you could well imagine. But you know, uh, bear tried to roll with it as best he could. And, uh, from what I remember, especially us crossing through the mists into Ravenloft for, for the, for our big adventure that we did, uh, he, he did the mood pretty well. And, uh, I fell in love with that setting. Absolutely. Like I said, when they started releasing the books for, for Ravenloft, I, I snatched them up. So, and, uh, yeah, what is this? Uh, March 16th is when this comes or March 15th. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I might have to <laughs> scrape together some cash and start making <laughs> some D and D purchases. Curse you. Curse you. But at least Wizards of the Coast is doing it right. So, and they got the Hickmans back to do it. So it's 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 bound to be good. Yeah. All right. Enough fanboying and drooling over Ravenloft. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we have other shows in the Galactic Netcast stable. Some of those, uh, continuing on with the thought process of of weirdness and horror, we have a show called Weird World Weekly, and that's where Matt and Dave randomly pick a topic that is about conspiracy about urban legend about horror and things of that nature and uh it's you know 15 to 20 minute podcasts so if you're looking for a shorter show and, and you're into into those type of topics that that could be very well for you uh we also have some other shows uh the alien invasion and the sci-fi geeks club and also the podcast of terror if you want to speak of horror a little bit further that's one of our newer shows, the Podcast of Terror, and well worth a listen. Uh, we also host things like uh, Galactic Net Bites, like Who Knew and Reviews, which is going to be interesting because Doctor Who is taking a hiatus for a year. <sighs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, well. Anyways, uh, you can check out all these shows and uh, the news that we post on a regular basis on GNCasts.com. Uh, covering all these different and various topics. So check it out. So we're on to our Kickstarter spotlight. And last week we talked about the pretty hilarious and interesting game called Beer Garden. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought that to us. So uh, where are they at? Well, they were looking for $10,000. They are at 15164 with 16 days to go still. With 616 backers, so this uh, nifty little game of 72 cards uh, where you are basically playing cards like tiles to create your own unique beer garden, it's a go. Yeah. Quite uh, happy for that. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at their stretch goals, they, let's see, 10,000 was their goal, so that's been uh, totally funded. At 12,000, they added eight more cards, which are four new home cards and four common cards uh, to the game. And they unlocked the 15,000 goal, which is the higher card stock quality, which is which is great. Because a game like this that probably has extremely high replayability value, you're going to want a, a higher quality card stock to, uh, to ensure that the game doesn't wear out uh, from frequent usage. So... 
boy, if they can stretch it a little bit further, their next goal is going to be translate the rules and uh, they're going to translate them into German, French, Dutch, and Spanish. I don't think that they're going to get to their two other goals beyond that, but it's funded and it looks like it looks like it's going to be a very, very fun game. So good for them. And that is Steamboat Gothic Studio. If you want to find out more about it, we'll have a link in the show notes or you can go to steamboatgothic.com. Uh, we're going to talk about a new game that I saw that really kind of, uh, it looks really interesting. And it is called Tiny Epic Western. Now, the one thing that really, truly caught my eye, and I am going to, for the YouTubers that are checking this out, I'm going to share the screen here. This is what really caught my eye, is they have custom bullet dice. (laughs) So these are basically D6s that are shaped like a bullet that you can roll. Now, what is this game about? It's uh, basically, it's poker. Poker meets worker placement in this artfully crafted 30-minute board game for one to four players. Tiny box, epic gameplay every time. And I am going to to share the screen again here so you can kind of see what's going on. So you have six different players, and each of you has a... I guess it's your own little place that, that you end up playing... And uh, in the center here, we have a, a wanted card. Now, I want to find, because I don't want to mess anything up on the explanation of this. There we go. In uh, Tiny Epic Western, you are the boss. And upon your boss card, you will keep track of your posse and your influence. You will be sending your posse members around town to play poker, gain influence, and purchase buildings. Each location offers compelling options of where to place your posse members, like using a building there, gaining instant influence, or doubling down for extra influence at the risk of not getting any. You will play a poker hand at each location you send a posse member to. And I love the look of these cards. They're, uh, they're different suits. You have teepees, horseshoes, steer heads, and, uh, and cowboy hats. Sounds but like other, an American version of Lucky Charms. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> and Lucky Horseshoes. It is three-card poker, which I think is is pretty interesting. Uh, here we go. Uh, winning will get you the poker pot and any extra influence from a double-down spot. You will need this influence for acquiring buildings later on in the round. The Sheriff's Office is a unique uh, unique location offering players the ability to change the value or suit of their poker card. It also offers a way to acquire an extra building each round and even activate your third posse member. Third posse member, activate! <laughs> okay. Beware. If you're standing in the way of your opponent, they can send their posse member in for a duel and possibly take your spot. Fighting doesn't go unnoticed around here, or unrewarded for that matter. It is the Wild West, after all. The winner of the last duel always takes the wanted card. After the locations have been resolved and players have gained influence for their winning poker hands, a buying purchase occurs. 
players can now use their influence to acquire one building from a location where they have a posse member. Remember, hitting up the sheriff's office can get you an extra buy during this phase. That can be a real game changer. Buildings offer you victory points to access their abilities and industry influence. At the end of each round, the player who has the best poker hand at the town hall advances one of three industries forward in their rank. At the end of six rounds, or as many bullets as the revolver can hold, the game is over. The industries have now been ranked first through third, and the majority shareholders, players with the most industry influence, will be paid bonus victory points respectively. Players add that to gain the sum of their victory points gained from acquired buildings. With the wanted player gaining uh, an extra two, and the player who has the most victory points is the winner. Now, oh, here we go. So, <laughs> looking at this, their goal was 15,000. They are currently at 301,227 with 12 days to go. I think it's been funded. A little bit. <laughs> Just a now, little bit. <laughs> this is from Gamelin Games, and it looks like they've created nine Kickstarters in the past. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Yeah, Tiny oh. Epic Kingdoms, Tiny Epic Galaxies. Sure. Yeah, I have several of these at home. Excellent. The giant Meeple Project. Oh, yeah, they've done a lot of stuff. Uh, looking at the rewards. Well, actually, if you pledge $8, you can get a premium print and play. This digital reward includes DIY game files uh, using art from the final production. Includes deluxe content. If you pledge $18, you get the base Tiny uh, Epic Western, one copy of the Tiny Epic Western without deluxe content, uh, the extra stretch goals. Shipping in the U.S. is $2, Canada $9, and the rest of the world $12. But it does ship anywhere in the world. Now, what I, what I would highly recommend to getting the, the best, I think, bang for your buck, for $24, bucks, you get the deluxe version of the game and you get all the stretch goals, all the digital rewards and the same shipping amount. And this is going to be a Kickstarter limited exclusivity. So yeah, after that you get into two copies of the game. So really 24 bucks for, for a game that's pretty inexpensive. Yeah. I think it's, Probably well worth getting on board and probably why they uh, got that thing back. And 301000 <laughs> out of their 10000 that they were looking for? That's, that's ridiculous. Uh, let's take a look and see what they unlocked here. A lot. Yeah. Uh, the $30,000 goal, they upgraded the, uh, the dice from the base to the deluxe D6s or the bullet-shaped D6s. 45,000 box thickness increased to two millimeters. Classier look, improved durability, increased longevity. Component upgrade number two, cubes become shaped bits. So you've got circles, stars, and gears, and purple horseshoes. Uh, 75,000, three new building cards are added. That's interesting. 
at 100,000, you get cowboy-shaped meeples as opposed to regular people meeples. <laughs> people meeple, oh, never mind. Uh, 125,000, the card quality uh, improves. Linen embossed, ooh, there we go. Oh, here we go. And those better shaped tokens are now printed, screen printed with uh, icons. Box printing improvement at 175,000. 200,000, three new building cards added. <laughs> oh, wow. 225 double-sided bosses, four new base game bosses, two new deluxe bosses. 250 upgraded poker chip, which uh, instead of just being a plastic poker chip, you know, like the standard cheap uh, white poker chip, it's now a double-sided and screen-printed poker chip. 275,000 glorious victories. Uh, let's see. Wait. Uh, oh, this is for the print and play. Okay. Yep. 300,000 official solo play rules. Great for learning, great for teaching, great for you. And if they do hit 330,000 plastic wanted card with transparent window. Interesting. Only available in the deluxe versions. And if they manage to hit 400,000 single boss player mats, 12 total boss mats, 8 base, 4 deluxe. Woo. More boss matchups, exponentially more replayable. I don't know if they would hit 400,000 here in 12 days. I'm going to I'm going to say it's probably not going to happen. But what they've got going on here is pretty fantastic. And I I am going to back this <laughs> cuz I yeah. want this game. This uh for $24 you'd kind of be foolish not to. 1 to 4 players short game time cuz there's 6 rounds to the game. And I have a feeling that once you, once you get used to gameplay, that that will ev go even quicker. Uh, it looks like a great concept, and um, just really creative and and very interesting based on the description. So, it's going to be uh, your estimated delivery is September of this year, and like I said before, it ships to anywhere in the world. Again, the U.S. shipping is two dollars, Canada nine. And the rest of the world is 12. So that's that's pretty reasonable, I think. Yeah. So what say you, Glenn, based on uh, that cool I'll reading? Yeah. I'll be back in it. I'm clicking the... I green. mean, I know this will end up in my store as well. Because we, we carry Tiny Epic Kingdoms and Tiny Epic Defenders. Yeah. I am logging into Kickstarter right now. <laughs> and take my money, please. There we go. 26 bucks. And there's my card, and you have my money, Kickstarter. Thank you. <laughs> so there we go. I think this is the second time that during the show I've backed a game uh, as we've been talking about it. So Only the uh, second? Huh. I think during the show, I think after the show I've backed others. But I, I just I need to give them my money right now. That sense of immediacy hit me, and uh, they can have my money. So, on to the next portion. So cool. <laughs> we are going to discuss a very interesting topic, and, and I want to thank uh, Scott Schwartz for that topic. 
And the topic is what we're calling It's All in Your Head. Minis or no minis? Is theater the mind going away? Or are minis essential to gameplay for tabletop RPGs? Now, I know when I first started out playing Iron Crown Enterprises with my GM at the time, Alan Gano, and we were playing in the Marathon County Public Library, and this is my sophomore year of high school, which would be 1986. <coughs> I'm old. And I was actually kind of shocked that they allowed us to play uh, in the library. This is the old library, not the new fancy one they've built. I think they built that in 88, 89, somewhere in there. Doesn't matter. And uh, we only got shushed a few times. <laughs> we tried to play towards the back of the library. And we, we tried to keep it down as best we could. You know, for the most part, we were playing Iron Crown Enterprises. Uh, gosh, it was uh, Fantasy Rollmaster. And then we ended up getting into their Space Rollmaster game. And uh, I can assure you that there were no miniatures used in that game. And it was all... And Alan was one of those game masters who could lay things out for you and explain things fairly well. And he used graph paper and, you know, would point, okay, you're here, they're here. Uh, there were no miniatures used at all. Have we, as we progressed, everybody has smartphones, everybody has some form of portable digital device or have really, I don't want to say taken for granted, but it's, there's some kind of graphical interface or graphical representation of things. And I guess we want to ask the question and discuss the, the topic of, is it required now? Has the art of using theater of the mind gone away? Or is there still a place for it? Or are there some games where you can just do it better in your head? Or some games that you require miniatures because they're a little bit more complex. I can't see Well, you obviously couldn't do, you know, Warhammer <laughs> in your head. You obviously, I mean, that's a miniatures based yeah. game. Um, there is a RPG version of Warhammer, which you possibly could get away with not using miniatures, but sure. I'm kind of wondering in that particular instance, if you were playing the minis game and you moved into the RPG, I have a feeling if you made that type of transition, you would probably be more willing than not to, or it would seem more necessary to have a miniature. Well, you'd already have them too. Well, yeah, true enough, true enough. So what do you think? I don't think minis are a necessity. They're, they're nice. They're, they're, you know, they, they can, they can help clarify some things and, and give you a bit of a better idea, especially when it comes to combat. I mean, if, if you need minis moving across a map just to be able to comprehend what a 10 by 10 room is, then I think RPGs may be a bit beyond you anyways. <laughs> um, but they're not necessary. I mean, when I first started playing, I played with no minis. Yeah. A lot of the games that I've, well, Mistrunner for one, and some of the games that I've run or played in, are smaller press and they don't have minis, so most of the time we don't use them. I might use I might use them like a hex map, maybe some tokens, but 
even a lot of times I don't even do that. I, I, I've always been, not always, but I mean, primarily been more of a theater of the mind. You understand where, what your place is, where you are, you know, when you, when you enter that, you know, that throne room, you know, you know, okay, the king is up on his throne there. There's the two guards flanking him. There's two guards at the door. The thief is standing to my left, just slightly behind me. The paladin's obviously right in front of me because he's the one being the talking because he has the high charisma. That's just how I usually played. That said, I, when I play with minis, it works just fine. I think the, the trick is, is you don't want... I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. I, I, I want to play a role-playing game. I don't want to play a minis game when I'm playing a role-playing game. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my minis games. I, mean, I, I spent seven hours playing Malifaux yesterday. So, um, but when I play minis, when I play minis games, when I play RPG, I play an RPG. So as long as the minis are a tool used to make the game better, I'm all for it. If if they're used to replace all of that, you know, sense of imagination, that sense of wonder, I'm not as big a, a fan of that. It puts an onus on the, the dungeon master or the game master of the game to still keep the game immersive. Because when you have it on the, when you know, when he just draws out the room and you put your figures in there, some GMs don't bother going into description then because you can just see, okay, I'm in a room that's 30 by 40. There's a door there and a door there. And the DM doesn't tell you anything. And it loses some of what I think makes a role-playing game fun. And that's, that's the telling of the stories. And stories have descriptions. Yep. So if you're going to use, in, in my opinion, if you're going to use minis and, and thereby also use maps of, of some sort or some kind of set, you still have to describe it. You still have to tell that story and don't get lazy. For lack of a better term, yeah, I I think that the mechanic of line of sight, especially if <clears throat> there are certain spells, uh, certain types of weapons, having a miniature and things drawn up is kind of critical. Uh, if you're a game master that really doesn't care so much about that, and I think you know, in this particular case, it really kind of comes down to game master style and and what they what they want to do or how much they want to put into a game and i wouldn't say that's good or bad either way it just depends on their style a miniature miniature setup is kind of can be critical if you're going to throw that mechanic in sure there have been times where yeah and i tend to play support type characters which are you know like clerics or mages or sorcerers and uh, line of sight is really kind of a big deal, especially when it comes to like the lower level of teleportation and things like that. You have to be able to see where you're, where you're doing the thing. You know, when we were talking about fourth edition of D and D and how it seemed like that particular version of D and D was trying to make it more, more like a video game in certain respects. Do you think in that particular setting? And I don't know how much I didn't touch it at all. I don't know how much you got a chance to play that. And you know, for for our listeners who are are, are listening to this particular episode, perhaps you can you can educate us. Uh, you can contact us at uh, adventure at gncasts.com. That's our that's our email address, and you can shoot us a little something there, and let us know. What I guess my question is: Was fourth edition did that need more 
graphical representation? Was it more miniature friendly? Was it more dependent on miniatures? Do you... was, from for my, and mind you, I had limited experience with it because I, I didn't enjoy the system, so I didn't really go out of my way to ever play it beyond the first couple times. But the impression I got was that it definitely didn't necessarily, you didn't have to have minis, but it definitely was a more, minis was the idea behind how you did stuff. Okay. But again, you know, that, that comes down to, you know, it's it's the players and the, and the and the GM or the DM is that you can get by without them. But yeah, 4th edition definitely had that feel where they were trying to go. Because 4th edition, in my mind, it also felt more like a video game. Yeah. And, and you needed that, you know, that kind of representation because, you know, that's video games are flashy and minis can be flashy. So, sure. and I, I, I felt that, you know, 4th edition through the emphasis much more away from role playing and more into just simply combat. Yeah. Which if that's all you're going to do, if, if all you do is fight stuff all the time, well then yeah, minis make absolute sense. Sure. But that's, that's the thing is that with minis, the other thing aside from the whole, make sure you're still telling the story. If you're using minis, you have to make sure that it doesn't slow down everything too, because all of a sudden it's like, Oh, now we're going to fight. Now I have to draw my map. Now I have to everyone figure out where they're standing in that room and put everyone in. I put it where all the bad guys are. And, you know, you take that 15, 20 minutes or longer sometimes to set everything up. It kind of takes you out of that moment. Because there's always that, that initial bit of adrenaline when, when the fight's getting ready to start. Yeah. And if yeah. everything suddenly comes screeching to a halt, it kind of takes you out of, out of the moment. Now, yeah. I've, I've played with, with guys who run minis, and they do it they do it very well because they've got things, you know, pretty set up. I actually played with a guy who had the center of the table was he could use, he had an overhead projector that he would project onto the table. Oh, okay. He sure. Yeah. Have, he would have uh, basically the, the projector sheets. So when we would enter the room, he would just simply slap that down. And then we, you know, so the maps, he had all of his maps pre-made. Now, mm-hmm. of course, not everyone can do that because not everyone can, you know, fabricate their own nifty table or it still owns an overhead projector. But, that made it flow really smoothly. Um, I've played games at cons where the the GM running the game, you know, then has to and he has to stop. But he's, he's draws like you know half half a line, and he looks back at his little notes, and he draws a little thing and puts it in the door. Yeah. And looks back at his notes, and I'm like, oh god, you know, because if you're doing like a whole dungeon crawl, your average you know dry erase you know roll up mat isn't gonna be big enough to hold your whole dungeon. No. Mm-mm. which means you're drawing and erasing all these, you know, over and over and over again. So that can, that can, as I said, it can detract from the overall story. So really at that point, game prep comes down to not just making sure that, you know, if you're doing a module or something you've created yourself that you've kind of tested and made sure you've gathered all the stats for monsters and other creatures and whatever uh, NPCs, but also having those maps ready to go. Yes. Some people may feel different. Some people, you know, that they, I know some people who take great pride in, in their mini and having that physical representation of, you know, oh, I'm trying to think of that name that one guy had for that one character that was so great for our Hi My Name Is. Oh, you Papadopoulos know. Butt Dicks. Yeah. You know, some people want their, you know, they want their physical representation of Papadopoulos Butt Dicks there on the table to rub it in the face of that person who, you know, the name was made to annoy anyways. <laughs> But a lot of people, t- they take great pride in their minis. I mean, we have, 
we have a fair number of people who play regularly at our store and they use minis for their games. And, and I know some of the watching some of the people when they're at the minis rack and they're looking through trying to find that proper mini for, you know, their bard or their, you know, their fighter or assassin, whatever. And in those regards, I feel a sense of shame and sadness for all the women who are trying to find, you know, something that is, well, I have 480 minis on my rack. Eight of them are women who are not wearing a chainmail bikini. Yeah. So, although it's gotten much better, there, there's now a lot more options available. Back when I was younger, I mean, the female characters for, for minis were, there was, you know, the sorceress wearing her, you know, basically harem outfit and like, you know, a thief. Everyone had, you know, their boobs popping out. and Tits of plenty. Yep. Tits of plenty, which, you know, as a, <laughs> As an 11-year-old boy, I saw nothing wrong. With oh, that. boy. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I, I got older and I realized that, oh, yeah, that's probably not going to attract the quality people we want to the game. Yeah. But that's a completely different topic, which could go on for a long time. Yes, it could. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, some people, you know, they, they love their minis, and, and it's, it's an important thing for them. And I know some dungeon masters, you know, who put a lot of time and effort into collecting all the minis, you know, that, when when they when you have a fight with fourteen goblins, they have fourteen different goblin minis because they've gone to the effort of tracking down so that everyone is slightly different. And, you know, and some people have the you know they have the goblin six pack, which is all you know one goblin holding a spear in the exact same pose. Nothing wrong with that. But some people take pride in their minis collection and they want to use it. I think nothing wrong with that. But again, I think you still have to have story to back it up. Yeah. Yeah. And like we were talking about with Ravenloft, when I played it in the early 90s, Bear did not... That was the name of our GM. His name was Bear. Uh, he did not have... Oh, God. We were we loved minis, and I was with a group of people that, you know, I had just learned how to paint miniatures at that time. So, you know, finding that, that miniature hadn't quite reached that point of uh, an absolute necessity, but you know, bear really didn't use miniatures. So he had to lay things out and be as descriptive as possible. And that's kind of, I think the exchange that you have to make is if you are, if you're going to do theater, of the mind, you can't, you can't half ass it, you know, it, it has to be laid out narrative. I mean, even if you look at some of the older, you know, if you have a half-price books or some kind of book reseller that has some of the older D&D modules, you should really read some of those because the box text, the narrative that is the kind of the descriptor of a particular room that you're in or building that you're in or portion of dungeon that you're in is highly descriptive, highly descriptive. And I think that that's the level that you need to be at to to get away with doing theater of the mind only and not using miniatures. You have to be as descriptive as possible and paint the picture in everybody's head. Now, not everybody's going to see the exact same thing, but everybody needs to have a good general idea of where things are placed so they can set things up and, you know, uh, and make things happen and not, you don't want to bog it down with too much narrative, but you need to be, as descriptive as possible with a bit of brevity 
the economy of words is essential here. But you need to lay that picture out as clearly and concisely as you possibly can so everybody's on the approximate same page as everybody else. And that's, that's like I said, that's the exchange that you need to make if you're not going to use minis. So would you say that minis make things easier for a GM or harder? Ooh, I think in some ways it makes it harder in that you have to do all that, your map prep, uh, write those maps out on the fly. But I think it makes it easier in settling some disputes for players because players love to yeah. tell their DM they're wrong, which does not fly well <laughs> at my table. Because that way when, when you have the minis, you, have, you can have the clarification of, no, you can't shoot the orc. Why? Look at where you're standing. You are a three foot two inch halfling, and sitting directly in front of you is your six foot four inch half orc barbarian. Yeah. You can't even see the orc from where you are, let alone shoot him. And if uh, you do fail, you might shoot him in the sack. Yeah. Because so, <laughs> you'd have to go from underneath. You know, or you can also get that whole thing of the are you sure you want to cast a fireball in this room? Oh, God. Because yeah. Then they, can actually, they can see the physical dimensions of the. That's a 20 by 20 room. Yeah. And what's the blast area of the fireball? 40 feet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you want me to, you know, let me draw a little red circle at 40 feet. Is See how it's bigger than the entire room? Yep. So, I mean, I, I think, again, it, it comes down to if the DM is prepared to use minis and is prepared properly, I think it can be a great tool. Yeah. But I, I, I think that some use it as a crutch. But again, that's also, I don't know if crutch is the right word. I guess for, for some, some DMs, it's a crutch. For some, it's, it can be a great, I guess, training wheels. When you're, when you're a newer DM, yeah. uh, it can be great to, to, to use minis because it gives you that sense of scale where perhaps your, your storytelling ability is not where you want it to be yet because, you know, this might be your first or second time behind the screen, which that alone is a daunting enough task having to keep track of combat and where everyone is yeah. for someone who's less experienced can be, can be tricky. A big part of, a big part of it again, depends on the players. If you have players that are, are more comfortable playing kind of free and loose where it's the story's more important than the, than the actual game itself, the playing of the game, then I don't think minis are that necessary, but it doesn't mean you sh don't have to use them. You can still use them and have a great experience, have a great story. But I think, at least in my experience, I think there's been a shift towards more people using minis. I think a big thing is things like video games and also the fact that, I mean, we are, we are tactile beings. We like to pick up things. We like to touch things. We like to see physical things. As much as, you know, many of us have great imaginations, uh, for a lot of people, it's, it's that extra element that adds something to the game for them. Yeah. But I know back back in my earlier days when I when I played games at Gen Con, many RPGA games like that, we've never had minis. At yeah. least in a lot of the games I played. I mean, sure, I'm sure there were games that used them. Lots of people use them, but I think you and I think part of it too is you have you've got easy things like now you can get pre-painted minis, so you can just buy you know tons of bulk, you know, and you can get the I need 48 goblins. Hey, here we go, 48 painted goblins <laughs> and you've got like the reaper bones lines now which are actually very affordable minis yeah 
because for a while there, you know, the, you know, the metals as great as they are, <sighs> when you're paying, you know, six, seven dollars for one mini, that got to be a lot of money. When now it's like seven, seven dollars with the Reaper Bones, you're getting like a giant, like an actual frost giant for seven bucks. Yep. You want to buy a bard? That's two fifty. So it's a lot easier to to buy these minis, and the fact that they're plastic, uh, or actually, I, I think they're like, I think they're like recycled PVC. If I have four hundred minis in the giant minis box, I am not getting a new hernia every other day by lugging that thing around. Yeah, because it's not all lead. And also, if my children decide to eat them, they won't get weird brain disorders and eventually Poisoned. go crazy and die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's another entirely different topic which would go on and on about of how just don't let your children eat lead toys. But <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't think there's, there's a right or wrong answer to it. It all depends on, on what game experience you and the players want. And for some people that is an experience that is like fourth edition where you're doing nothing but fighting stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's the, the thing I've said before. And we say it all the time, my stories. I'm not the arbiter of your fun. I mean, if you're at my table, to a degree I am, because it's also my fun. But, I mean, someone else playing, you know, the, the guys playing right now at a table in Sacramento, I have no no merit or, or authority to dictate to them how they are playing the game right or wrong. Even if it's a game I would never want to play in because they do things completely contrary to how I feel they should be done, it's, it's fine. I'm not playing with them. No, very true. <sighs> Yeah, as a game master, you're in control of everything. If you want to have miniatures in the game uh, or not, I mean, that's that's always up to you. You're in control. Yeah, just like anything else, there are pros and cons. The pros, it can definitely nip some rules lawyering in the bud <laughs> when, when you can say, well, there's a there's a little bit of wall here, so you can't, you know, you're an archer. You can't shoot through stone to hit this person over here. You know, or you give the example of the fireball. I've been in a couple of situations where I've almost been killed because somebody misunderstood the size of the room that we're in and they launch a fireball. That's that's happened to me. And that was, I think that was in a, a game that Bear ran, actually. And because he didn't, you know, map things out, there was confusion and bear was the kind of person to go, you want to do that? Okay. Uh, you can do that. And, uh, uh wackiness ensued. <sighs> the cons, as we mentioned before, are, it adds to your prep time. Cause like you said, nothing kills the velocity of a game for you to go. Ah, I know you guys wanted to kill these orcs that are, you know, running into uh they just broke down the door and they're running into your section of the dungeon and you guys are going to have to fight uh let's take a 10 minute break and i need to map everything out because that like you're absolutely right that kills the adrenaline the fun you you want to jump into it but you have to have to wait until it's all mapped out and everybody can place themselves on the board and that's that's no fun so, I guess in the grand scheme of things, maybe it's not so much that the youth of today, they, they need their graphics and they need, I don't think it's so much that 
perhaps, and to look at it in that particular regard, uh, one makes us sound like old assholes <laughs> to, to use that as a as an argument. But I think, too, it's if if you're in a situation where it's it's training wheels, you know, there's no shame in that to get that game experience under your belt until you're comfortable running all the multiple aspects, doing game prep, doing this and doing that conflict resolution, getting comfortable with the rules for that particular system that you're running and whatnot. It's one less thing that you have to do. So, you know, there's definitely a, a pro there for especially new gamers. Also, you know, if you're, playing with a group of creative people, like if I was playing with J.F. DeBow, I'm willing to bet that miniatures would definitely be a part of the deal. And you would probably also be having days where you would paint miniatures together. I, I think it really kind of depends on the chemistry of the group and your interest, your interests in gaming and the different aspects of, you know, miniatures, finding miniatures, painting miniatures. Mm -hmm that's really more of a group dynamic thing. And that's something that that can develop organically. You know, maybe you start without, and then you, you know, start to paint miniatures and hang out and um, decide that uh, maybe this is something that you do want to add. You know, it, it really, at the end of the day, you, the game master, make the decision. And, you know, you want to listen to your, your players. If you have frequent, issues of spending way too much time in gameplay going you know explaining the room over and over to people and that's killing the velocity of the game you know maybe you do want to um, switch to mapping things out and using miniatures you know maybe maybe the group that you're with is either filled with rules lawyers or people that have a hard time imagining the placement of the room or Perhaps you need to get more practice in being descriptive in, in your settings. So you definitely want to listen to the group and the group will kind of guide you towards the decisions that you should probably be making as a game master to ensure that gameplay is fun and gameplay continues to have a smooth flow uh, where you're not losing the velocity. I keep using velocity. I just love that. But it's true. You're all moving at a pace. And the narrative of the game, the actions that are taking place in the game, you know, if you're in a tavern, things are probably moving slowly. But if you're in the middle of the battle, um, the, the pace picks up. So you want to make sure that you're trying to keep that velocity going at the appropriate level. And anytime that you have to put the brakes on, on that velocity, especially at key points where things are happening, that can take you out of the game. And if you're playing with people that aren't patient <laughs> or they're, you know, uh, they really wanted to have this particular fight or whatever, you don't want to hear them go, all right, I'll, you know, go take a 10 minute break or whatever and we'll, we'll get back to this because that's just no fun. That's no fun for anybody. So said it before, said it again. One Glenn saying of I'm not the arbiter of your fun. Yeah, you know, we can't tell you what to do. The only thing that we wanted to do here is kind of lay out pros and cons and 
talk about the different thought processes and instances where minis may work out better or <clears throat> may actually be distracting. And that really kind of comes down to group dynamic, the individuals that are playing and what level you might be at as a, as a storyteller, as a game master. So, all right. Anything more to add to that, Glenn? No, I think we covered it pretty good. I think we did too. I think we did too. Uh, you can find out more about our meetings. Uh, check out the show notes from each meeting, contact info, and you can subscribe to all of our shows, including this one and some of the other shows that Galactic Netcast has. Uh, you can go to gncasts.com slash adventure, like I said before, and that will take you right to our particular show. You can find us and follow us on Twitter or join our Facebook group, by using the Facebook search term Galactic Netcasts. We do have a Facebook page, but we're not nearly as active as we are on the group. You know, we try to, we're, we're trying to build a community and we've got a, a pretty good community built as is, and we want to, we want to add to that. And we want to continue having that uh, group conversation that I think works a lot better uh, having a, a, a Facebook group uh, to do what we're trying to do. Uh, you can also find all the information of our other social media outlets by clicking the links on our website. Uh, you can find our YouTube channel where you can see the video versions of our Adventure Party meetings, and you can go to youtube.com slash galactic netcasts to find the Adventure Party playlist. Uh, if you're using iTunes or Stitcher, please take a moment and give us a review. Uh, iTunes, it's a star system. Stitcher, it's thumbs up, thumbs down. Let us know what you think. Please, if you get a chance, write a review and let us know. Positive or negative, uh, we don't care. Your comments can help shape the show and uh, make it a little bit better. Your input is what we what we desire to make a, a better show for everybody to listen to. Uh, you can leave us feedback by emailing adventure at galactic net. Oh, gosh, I did it again. Adventure at gncasts.com. That is adventure at gncasts.com or you can call or text us at 805-328-3966 again 805-328-3966 and you can leave a voice or text message at that number uh, depending on your particular cell phone package uh, there could be a, a fee for a text message that you send uh, it depends so I want to thank you Glenn for joining us once again and talking about miniatures and their importance and their place uh, in gameplay. Uh, where can people find out more about the B-Movie Bunker or Mist Runner the RPG? You can find me on Facebook, Mist Runner RPG. You can just follow me on Facebook. You can also find me on YouTube, Naked Hobo Productions, and the B-Movie Bunker. Or just follow me on Twitter, at Naked Hobo. Nice. <laughs> Makes me giggle every time. Hey, before we end... They've got a new round of Doctor Who miniatures. This is the ninth Doctor with banana. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's got the banana. That's a, uh, uh, that's a Hot Topic exclusive. I'm the old man who goes to Hot Topic, has a Hot Topic credit card, and spends hot, their Hot Topic cash to buy stuff because... I love my son and I know he enjoys that stuff. And I like being the old guy that comes in there and makes the, makes the young kids uncomfortable while he buys his Alice in Chains t-shirt. 
that actually happened today. They yeah. still had an Allison Chains T-shirt. Oh yeah, they it, it's uh, the cover for uh, Dirt. Okay. Yep, we got father and son Allison Chains Dirt T-shirts. I just I was watching an <laughs> episode of Portlandia. It was the Take Back MTV. Oh sure. And someone said, "Yeah, the Sonic Youth, they're like fifty now." Yeah. <laughs> yes, they would be. I'm like, yeah, I guess they are. <laughs> Well, I look at it this way. Alice in Chains put out the devil. The, the devil put dinosaurs here. I believe it. I'm probably misremembering the one of the words in the in the title. But as soon as that hit the uh, Google Play Store, I I bought it immediately. It's a great album. So, yep, I'm that guy. So there you go. Anyways, enough of hot topic talk. <laughs> I want to thank everybody for listening to Hot Topic Talk and our talk about miniatures today on the Adventure Party. May your characters never die and your adventures always be epic. Thank you and good night. You have been listening to a production of Galactic Netcasts. For more about this show and others, go to GNCasts.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com. <laughs>